You're listening to a message delivered at First Family Church from the series, The Kings and the King, Expectation in the Books of the Kings. For more information and messages, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Well, we have about three weeks to go, including today. Uh, Three weeks till we're finished with The Kings and the King. We've been in it for about two years I had a guest tell me at 8.30, they'd been maybe three or four times, they said, wow, we were stunned that you'd been in those books for two years. I was like, yeah, probably many people are, but it's worked out well for us. I've learned a ton, I hope you have as well, and I hope that what you've seen is what I've seen is that, man, this, the Bible continually points us to Christ, doesn't it? Even in all the gore of the Samuels and the Kings and the Chronicles, man, it's just all designed to help us see Jesus more clearly. So I've really enjoyed that. Um, today was, we're going to kind of keep trekking on. We're, we're scheduled to be through December 16th. I'll preach this week's message. Uh, next week, uh, Pastor Eric will be preaching, and it'll be his first time to actually preach here as our resident church planter in this place. And then we're going to close out on the 16th with kind of a roundtable discussion between myself, Pastor Chris, and Pastor Travis on the last parts of 2 Kings and some overview and summary. So... We're headed that way. Let's keep tracking today uh, by finding 2 Kings chapters 18 through 20. And while you're finding that, uh, I want you to just kind of rehearse in your mind the the last funeral you attended or maybe a funeral you've been to. If you've been to a funeral, in fact, it will help you process today's chapters. Let me explain what I mean. When you go to a funeral, you have maybe an hour or so in which they celebrate the life of the deceased, and nothing wrong with that, but they kind of give you the highlights. I mean, it's hard to capture multiple years, and we're kind of assuming, let's say, someone who lived a a lengthy life to some degree, and um, it's hard to capture all that in an hour, isn't it? So you kind of give the highlights, kind of the funeral summary. Often they'll read the obituary, or they'll they'll kind of share some memories, and typically as they share those highlights, as they give those memories, they're typically what kind of highlights? What's the word in your mind now? They're good. Yeah, not, it's not a trick question here. They're just good highlights. They're, they're like, oh, yeah. It's, and they just kind of share the, the positive things. And nothing disingenuous about that. Nothing wrong about that. Uh, you have a limited amount of time to kind of remember them. But as you leave the funeral and you're kind of done with the obit and the summary speech, you go out to lunch, let's say in the uh, you know, the church or somewhere like that, you're, you're sitting with the family, you, you hear a, a lot more, don't you? Sometimes you hear things that make you laugh, and then sometimes you hear things like, oh, I didn't know he did that, you know, and you, you kind of wince, and you kind of hear the, the back stories that maybe you didn't get in the summary, and there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes in funerals, you kind of hear the hero, and then sometimes in the lunches, you realize they're pretty human. <laughs> Would you get, you kind of tracking with me? So so that's what's happening in 2 Kings 18, 19, and 20. In verses 1 through 8 of 2 Kings 18, we kind of have the funeral summary. Now, Hezekiah is the man in focus, and he's not dead, but they're giving you that type of summary. Here's how he lived his life. Here's what's great about him. You have nothing negative about Hezekiah in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 18. But as you get into chapter 18, 18, beginning about verse 13 through 19 through 20. As you read 2 Chronicles 19, excuse me, 29 through 32, you realize Hezekiah is pretty human as well. A lot of his mistakes are mentioned there, some of his struggles. 
And so we're going to look today at this man called Hezekiah, one of the kings of Judah, and really be encouraged, I think, that in the middle of his life, with all of its good and bad, we're going to see who really is reigning on the throne of the universe. Let me kind of put this in a diagram for you, can I? Here's um, kind of how I see these three chapters. Verses 1 through 8 of chapter 18 is a summary. And by the way, you should be thankful for summaries, whether they're at the funeral or just in other settings. Uh, you really, I mean, like when I have my funeral, I really don't want my wife up here telling you all the things only she knows about the worst mistakes I've made. I don't really want that, okay? My kids like tweeting and posting on Facebook all the dumb mistakes I've made. You don't want that. I don't want that. Our staff and our family sharing all the idiosyncrasies and quirks that I have that frustrate them and irritate them. You know yours. Your spouse knows yours. Like, we don't want that in the summary, do we? So summaries are good. We have that here in 2 Kings, just a summary of Hezekiah's life. But the truth is, the Bible is very real with us, and it gives us in the following chapters some of the stories about his life kind of behind the summary. So let's dig into this. Let's learn some things. I want us to read mainly the, the summary part of this king in Judah whose name is Hezekiah. The Bible says in verse 1 of 2 Kings 18, In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Now remember, we're picking up here in Hezekiah's reign now that the northern kingdom, as Travis taught us last week, is done. They've been captured and exiled and even kind of distributed out. They're no longer. They've, they're under the wrath and the penalty of, of God's judgment it's just Judah now, and Hezekiah is their king. The Bible says that he was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. Look at this summation here. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That's, that's, a, that's a win right there, isn't it? But it even adds this tag to it. Look at verse 3. According to all that David his father had done. Now here's why that's important. Every king, once the split occurred between the north and the south, they were judged based on David. He's the, the standard bearer for all kings. He's the man after God's own heart. He's the one to whom the promise was made that your house will be a dynasty. So he's the ultimate king, physically speaking. Here, Hezekiah is referred to as, you know what? You're not just obeying God. You're, you're obeying God like David. Man, what a compliment. Let's keep reading. It says in verse 4, specifically, he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. Verse 5, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. Isn't this amazing that he actually attacked the one thing that most kings were unwilling to do? What was that? He cut down, took away the high places. If you were to go back and read previous kings, some of them were called good, but it would just have this tag. It would say, but he refused to move the high places, but not Hezekiah. He went after the tough parts of his job. He was a man of action. And he actually, in fact, really helped Israel kind of tackle the three things of which they were guilty. Remember, they were guilty of not worshiping the Lord exclusively, of not being covenantally com uh, committed to the community, and then not being culturally distinct from the nations. Three kind of categories, like big umbrellas of their sins. And Hezekiah went after all of these. 
He would cleanse the temple. He restored the worship. He organized the priests. He celebrated the Passover. He cut down the idols. He got rid of the high places. He was saying to the community, we have a job under God's authority to worship only God. Here's how we'll do it in this community, and it will be different than the nations. But that's what kings do. They obey God and lead the people. And Hezekiah was a good king. It says in verse 5, he trusted the Lord so much so that after the split, he was just the best there was so far. It's like David. Verse 6, he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but he kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and his territory from watchtower to fortified city. Man, don't you love Hezekiah? And a bright spot in a pretty dark day, wouldn't you say? Let's look over a few chapters. Chapter, what is it, 20 and verse 20. In fact, we could have a little pun here and say this is a good 2020 view of Hezekiah here. Did you get that, guys? I hope so. Here's what he says. Listen to this obituary type of conclusion. The rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all his might, how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city, they're not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah. Hezekiah slept with his father, and Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. Kind of listing his actions. Like, man, he really was a good king. Skip over even further to the right, 2 Chronicles chapter 32. I'll show you one more type of obituary reading about this king. It's 2 Chronicles 32, 32. Here's how the chronicler records the end of his life. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his good deeds, behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. In the book of the kings of Judah and Israel, and Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the upper part of the tombs of the sons of David. Now watch this next phrase. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did him honor at his death. Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. I mean, when you read 18, 1 to 8, 20, 20, 32, 32, you cannot help but come away from those verses realizing in the funeral summary speech, man, Hezekiah was a win. True? It's kind of what you get the picture of. But as you read the chapters that follow those summaries, you get a different story. Now, not a contradictory story. We should say perhaps you get more of the story. The hero actually looks a little more human. Now, while we're still on Hezekiah and, and kind of the good commendation he got, I want to remind you that we are releasing a podcast today on Hezekiah. I'd encourage you to go to our website. You can, I think, either download it there or get access to it. Or however you normally get your podcast feeds, just trust that. It'll come through there naturally. But Pastor Carlos, myself, Chris, and Eric. Uh, Travis, were you in on that one or not? I think you were gone that day. But I think four of us sit down and kind of have a roundtable discussion about Hezekiah, his life. We'll give you a lot more detail into some of the things that you're going to hear referenced just briefly today. I'd encourage you to download that and listen to it. I think you'll really... Uh, learn a lot and, and glean some information that perhaps you didn't know before about Hezekiah. So his summaries in the first eight verses, we get more about his life, however, as the chapters unfold. And what we find is that Hezekiah really was very human. He wasn't perfect. Though you kind of get the impression at the beginning, like, man, this guy, he just never, he never fouled one off. He never got a single. He just home run after home run after home run. No, not really. Let me in fact, can I have you notice a couple of ways in which Hezekiah was very human, a lot like me and you? And you'll appreciate this. First of all, I think Hezekiah 
really struggle with what I call fearful weakness. You find this laid out for us beginning in chapter 18, verses 13 and 14. Now, what I'm about to read to you is going to sound almost contradictory to what we just read. It's not. It's just more of the story. But notice how the writer here now gives us more insight into the struggle that Hezekiah experienced when his enemies came against him. Hezekiah uh, here is referenced in chapter 18 of 2 Kings, verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah... Look at the next three words, and took them. Not a good day here. And so Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I've done wrong. Withdraw from me, and whatever you impose on me, I will bear. Is this the same guy of which it was written about? He rebelled against the king of Syria, (laughs) king of Assyria? Is this the same guy? Sure it is. We're getting more of the meat and potatoes of his journey towards this place where he finally said, you're you're not going to stay here. And in this journey of of Hezekiah's, there were moments he had fearful weakness. In fact, this same guy that you read about in the summary is the guy who's now saying, I'll give you whatever you want. The scriptures record as the chapter unfolds that he goes to the temple and he kind of strips the gold and the silver. He collects it. He's going to make, use this as his payment to Sennacherib. It doesn't sound like the first guy, does it? But he's struggling with this enemy who's coming in and, and taking over cities. What does he do? Does he try to appease him? Does he negotiate with him? Well, he also cries out to Isaiah during this time. He says, Isaiah, we're in a bind here. What do we do? And Isaiah assures him in chapter 19 that God would see that Judah was victorious. Look at verse 6 of chapter 19 with you, would you? Here's what he says um, to Hezekiah. Isaiah says to them, basically, do not be afraid because of the words that you've heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Don't worry. Behold, I'll put a spirit in him. He'll hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I'll make him fall by the sword of his own land. Here's God's assurance to Hezekiah and Hezekiah's uh, company, kingdom, that Sennacherib would not win in the end. All right? Upon the heels of this announcement, though, Sennacherib sends another letter with really intense threats. Hezekiah worries again. He goes to the temple and he lays out this prayer before the Lord. A beautiful prayer. You'll see it in chapter 19. And God responds again to Hezekiah with assurance. I'll take care of this. You can read about that response in the poem between verses 21 and about verse 28. It's a poem written against Sennacherib. And in one sense, almost divinely mocking him and letting him know, you think you're great, but you're actually going to fall. And we see that God does do this. Verse 30, excuse me, verse um, 35 of chapter 19. You still with me? That night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. So there's the end of the story. But along the way, what do we see in Hezekiah? This attempt to negotiate with Sennacherib offering money. He even goes to the temple and takes some of the gold and the silver. He's actually taking action to try to appease the foreign king. Yet he knows in his mind, Isaiah has assured me that God's promised victory. He prays again. God promises victory in this kind of poetic prophecy. But all the while, Hezekiah struggles with this fearful kind of weakness. Now, let me push pause here and just 
take a moment to talk to anyone here who's reading this and, and seeing the battles and the historical names and the places. And you're thinking, is this actually real? Well, the Bible is actually historical. It's a time and space literal book. Uh, and so when we preach through these and we explain these battles and these stories and these kingdoms and their king's names, we're not making them up. We're not just, a, you know, like, well, these are myths. These are actual places. And one of the ways that we can verify that is through other historical artifacts and documents that, that surface over time. One of them actually involves this battle between Hezekiah and Sennacherib. It's called Sennacherib's Prism. Here's a picture of it. Uh, it's in some museums. It kind of travels around. There are some copies of it that people have made to kind of use in other places, but there's only one of these. And basically, um, in this historical recounting of some of the events in Sennacherib's kingdom, um, you find an account of this very campaign against Judah. What you read in the Bible, you find inscribed on this stone that was uncovered in Assyria. It's just a real way to kind of... Uh, bring a lot of uh, you know, veracity, truthfulness to, to the Bible. Not that we doubt it, but when you see that, oh wow, the opposing king documented the very same battle, you realize these are actual historical things that we're talking about and learning from. Now, I think it's interesting in this document, Sennacherib tells a different version of the ending. You know that? He kind of says that he was uh, kind of, he captured Hezekiah and put him like a bird in a cage. But the Bible recounts for us a different version. Now, I hope that doesn't sound to you like a contradiction. That's just like asking yesterday, if you asked the coach and the players of Drake, did you guys win? They'd probably say, oh, it's a moral victory. Lose to Iowa State 27-24? Drake versus Iowa State? How does that happen, right? He's like, now if you ask Drake, they got a whole different way of explaining that loss than if you ask Iowa State, right? It's going to come out really different from their mouth. So same game, one game, history, time and space, two different versions of how it really ended, right? Same thing here. Losing captains, losing generals, victorious generals. I'm going to explain it differently. But here's the point I'm making. Actual history. Documented time and space. So if you're struggling with, is the Bible true? Are these things we teach and that we look at week after week, especially in this current series, are they really examples for us? Oh, they actually are. Inspired by God. They took place in real space and time. I hope that builds your confidence in the word of God you hold in your hand. This is the battle in which I think Hezekiah displayed his fearful weakness. Of course, we see him in the end doing well. He eventually does trust God, but the journey along the way was one of kind of ups and downs, wasn't it? It kind of sounds like us sometimes, doesn't it? Another way that Hezekiah is a lot like us is that I think he struggled with prideful selfishness. What you find in chapter 20 is really the recounting of his sickness unto death, which he prays about. God answers his prayer and gives him 15 more years. During those 15 years, he is very prosperous. At the end of all that prosperity, he actually takes credit for it. And instead of giving God the glory for the extra 15 years and the prosperity within them, he kind of shows off all of his goods. God comes in again at the end of his life and judges him for that. Now, I could read all of 20 for you. It would take too long in this message. I'd rather go to 2 Chronicles and read you a, a more succinct version of that story. So kind of flip to the right for a minute. 2 Chronicles 32. Look at three verses, 24, 25, and 26 of 2 Chronicles 32. Here's the story of chapter 20 in a much shorter version. That will kind of show you Hezekiah's 
uh, prideful selfishness. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he answered him and gave him a sign. You can read the details in 2 Kings 20, okay? The sign was actually that God would make the shadow move backwards 10 steps. God did. Hezekiah was confident he'd get 15 more years. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him. In other words, when all was said and done, he kind of like claimed it as his own. Like, yeah, look what I, how good I've done. Look at the kingdoms I've built. Look at all the wealth I've accumulated. Man, I, I really did well with 15 more years, didn't I? Instead of crediting and, and giving the glory to God. Because his heart was proud, verse 25 says. And therefore wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. But Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart. That's a good sign there. Both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. You know what you see here? You see Hezekiah doing this. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Kind of up and down, don't you? He's proud, and he's not proud. He repents. Oh, then he's proud, then he's not proud. He repents. It's a lot like us. And so you see, he really kind of struggled with this kind of prideful selfishness. Now, a few more details about this that I think are astounding. In the middle of this uh, end of his sickness, you'll see this in chapter 20 of 2 Kings, when he's actually um, kind of showing off all the goods and all of his prosperity, he's judged by God for this. And the Lord comes to him and says to him, uh, I want to take your life. But then he repents, and God says, okay, I'll not do this in your lifetime, but I'll do it in the generations to come. And Hezekiah gives the oddest response to this. Again, it's a window into some of his struggles. Look at this, look at this comment. It's in chapter 20, verse 19 and 20. I mean, I think any dad, any leader of an organization, a team leader, an owner of a company, you're going to see this, you're going to kind of chuckle. Like, who would actually say that? But Hezekiah says this, when he's told that the judgment will not come in his days, but in his son's days, he says, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought to himself, why not if there will be peace and security in my days? Isn't that amazing? This is the same guy who in the first eight verses of 18, he did what was right. He trusted God. He held fast. He tore down the high places. This is the guy which you, in the, in the funeral summary, you're like, dude, he's a hero. He also like dissed on his sons. He's like, oh good, better you than me. He's like showing off all the prosperity that God actually gave him. He's trying to negotiate with the foreign king. I mean, when you dig into the details, you realize there really are no heroes. We're all human. And we've all got spots and blemishes and sins. And you're thankful like I am that your funeral is only an hour long, aren't you? You really don't want to hear all the stuff being told at the table around the food when they're chuckling and wincing. <laughs> so what do we do with this? We see a summary that is beautiful. And then we see stories of both good and bad, and, and we think, how do we mix those? I just want to bring to you two fortunate facts that I've drawn from these that I think will encourage your heart today and help us kind of piece together these three chapters and point us to Christ most effectively. Two fortunate facts. Here's the first one. Our actions are not first. Now, I told you before that Hezekiah was a man of action, right? 
He's very proactive. 29-year reign, he accomplished a lot. And yet, I would say to you, Hezekiah's actions were not first. What do I mean by that? See, we typically do this. We read the phrases in chapter 18. In fact, look back there in your Bibles again, would you? Chapter 18, you can look at verse 3 where it says, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, even like his father David had done. You look at verse 5, He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. You can look at verse 6, He held fast to the Lord. You can look at verse 7, The Lord was with him. And often we think this, So because Hezekiah did that, then God did this. And I say to that a thousand times, no. This is not to minimize Hezekiah's actions. But it is to make sure we prioritize them. Hezekiah's actions were not first. God didn't look down and say, oh, I see Hezekiah really doing a good job. I think I'll go be with him. Like my kind of guy. No. God was already on the scene, present, involved in Judah. In fact, he had been on the scene before Hezekiah ever showed up. He was going to be on the scene after Hezekiah did die. God was already on the scene bringing Judah to their place of discipline all the while, as Travis said last week, holding the hope of Israel in the line of David. All this is already going on. So you tell me whose actions are first. They're not Hezekiah's. They're God's. You see, I say it like this. Our actions, just like Hezekiah's, are actually responsive. God's are regenerative. He's the first cause. Ours are corresponding actions. God's are causal. Ours are secondary. God's are primary. And that's what's happening here. Long before Hezekiah's on the throne in Judah, God's on the throne of the universe. And let me give you a little more insight into why I say this. When Hezekiah is king, what does he actually do in a very specific way? Look at verse um, 6. It says he held fast to the Lord and did not depart from following him, but he kept the commandments that the Lord commanded. Say the next word with me. Moses. Hezekiah is going back to the very beginning when God gave the law at Mount Sinai. This is what I expect of this covenant community. I want you to live in this fashion. So Hezekiah is actually building his set of actions upon God's first set of actions. That's why I say to you, Hezekiah was responsive. This is not to minimize his action. It's not to downplay them, but it is to make sure we understand. Hezekiah is not the genius of the story. God's always been there. He had given his instruction to Moses. Other kings had strayed, but Hezekiah is bringing them back to what God intended. He's acting now in response to what God commanded earlier. Do you see what's happening here? So let's be clear. Just as Hezekiah, our actions aren't first. We also are to be a responsive people to what God has already done and said. Two examples for you. Put some shoe leather on this. What has God done for us in Christ at the cross? He has made us righteous. Hallelujah, church. Amen. At the cross, God satisfied his wrath against sin by pouring out his judgment upon his son, Jesus Christ. And the Bible now says that all who believe in Jesus Christ will be saved. They'll be saved from God's wrath unto God and into God's family by by believing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 16, 31, Romans 10, 9, and 13. It's such a clear scriptural directive 
We call all men everywhere to repent and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But is that our idea? No. That was action God took on our behalf. And so now what does he ask us to do in response to that? Watch this. As believers, to witness. To share the story. To be ambassadors. You can use whatever you want, word you want. Tell our testimony. Talk to our neighbors. Be missionaries. You can say however you wish. But our actions to be bold in our community, to witness about Christ, to talk about our testimony, to give glory to God for how he saved us. It's not our first action. We're not the ones who thought of that. We are doing that in response to what God has already done. In fact, God has promised that he will save people. He is saving people. He's going to save people. He's going to bring every one of those believers to the throne from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. So you know why I witness? You know why I want you to witness? You know why I want all of us to share the gospel? Because God has promised to save people. So we witness in response to what he's promised and what he's done. See, our actions aren't first. They're responsive. So when you leave today, you're going to get a little card. There will be an invite to a Christmas Eve service. I, I want to ask you, pass it out. I'll say this again. I've said it before. Don't put it where? Don't put it on your fridge. You know about the service. We'll remind you here. Give it away. You say, well, Todd, that can be hard. It can be awkward. Yeah, it is. Sometimes the best things are the hard things. But man up, woman up. Take a few cards. And folks who who could use an invitation, just politely tell your story. Say, hey, I go to First Family, and I'd like to invite you to come with me to Christmas Eve. Just in your own way, just invite them. Do respond to what God has asked us to do and because of what he's done by being obedient and witnessing and sharing in our community. That's all we're asking. Amen? It's not the first action. It's a responsive action. We do the same thing when we pray. I mean, we're not praying as believers and God's saying, oh, Eric's praying. I probably ought to listen to him. I mean, I like the way he prays. Yeah, You know what, Eric? Good idea. I think I'll listen in. Well, actually, we pray because God has promised if we pray according to his will, he hears us. It's because we know he hears us that we pray. Did you know that? And so since Scripture reveals God's will, I really love the way that Chris has been leading us in Scripture-fed prayer. This is where the will of God's revealed. So we pray in accordance with Scripture, empowered by the Holy Spirit, with the confidence that God hears us. So which is our prayer life? It's not the first action. It's the responsive action. It is the best action we can take, but it's not our idea. It's God's idea in response to the fact that he hears us. Isn't that sweet, church? And you can just do this on a number of levels, from Bible reading to giving. Our obedience is a responsive measure to what God has already said and done. So let's be clear. Just like Hezekiah's story here, his actions weren't really first. He's a man of action, proactive, diligent, yes, but they weren't the first. God was already on the scene. And guess what? God's before your life and will be after your life. And he's calling for you to respond in your life to things he's already said and done. So let me ask you, will you respond today with a yes to God? Now notice what I did not ask you. I did not ask you if you'd respond to God today. Because every person in this building will respond to God today. Just some of you will not respond with a yes. But you will respond. 
I'm urging you, in light of God's word and God's work, to respond with a yes. If you're a skeptic, kind of a curious seeker, you're kind of just you know, checking Christianity out. You've seen today not only historically, but you've seen biblically. God is at work, and he's bringing all of history to the culmination of his son, the Messiah, Christ. It's a great month to see this end, isn't it? And the whole point of Christ's coming was to be the sacrifice for our sins, to seek and save that which was lost. This morning, if you're lost, you're not sure if Christ is the only way, and can you really trust him? I assure you, what you read in these scriptures is true. It's proven historically. It's proven archaeologically. It's proven divinely. When the Bible calls us to believe in Christ, God has written to us that this is his command, and he knows that the only answer to our soul's deepest need is relationship with him through Jesus. Would you trust Christ this morning and the finished work of Christ on the cross for you and his death and burial and resurrection? Would you just say, God, save me through Jesus. I believe that Jesus was your son and that you raised him from the dead and God promises in that moment to save all who believe. That should be the response of anyone here who's not a Christian. Maybe you're a straying Christian. You're away from God. There's some pain in your life kind of been dealt some weird blows. Maybe some were your fault, maybe some weren't. But you've kind of tagged God with it. Yeah, it's your fault. And so you're just really distant. You belong to him. You know you're a Christian, but you're not sure how to resolve this pain. I want to encourage you to come back to God as the father, the loving father who actually is. I know sometimes our perceptions of him aren't loving because of people around us. But don't let the perceptions... Don't let the, the, the other people around you be the filter used to see God. Let the word be the filter by which you see God. And God's word says to us that he is a loving father who will never leave us or forsake us. So if you're straying, would you hear the Lord calling you back home this morning? Maybe you're a sensitive Christian in relationship with God, listening and following well. But you sense there's something, a specific step he wants you to take. Would you say yes to that? So wherever you are on the spectrum, whether you're skeptic or straying or maybe you're a sensitive following Christian, I want your response to be, yes, Lord, this morning. There's one more observation here that we can see that I think will help us form our take-home truth in a moment. And that's this, that our actions are not final. So just as they're not first, we know God has been on the throne of the universe before we ever got to the throne of our life, right? Right? We may own an address on Southeast Third Street, but God's been around the universe since it began. He's here before and after, so ours aren't first, but neither are ours final. And man, this is great news, isn't it? Because it says to me something, and this is what I see in Hezekiah's life. You know, we're not judged by our last at-bat. Man, can somebody say amen to that? Aren't you thankful? And that's not how the culture will make you think. The culture is only going to want us to know one thing. What have you done for me lately? You're only as good as your last three-pointer, blockbuster movie, top billboard song, Facebook post, creative tweet, business deal. And if those run out, we'll find somebody different. Yeah, that's not God. Because Hezekiah is proof positive. He had some moments when his swings weren't real good. But aren't you glad that our actions aren't final. They're a part of a bigger picture, actually. 
I call it the, the EKG picture of your life. I have this same picture, by the way. Do you ever feel like your life is like this? This is how Hezekiah's was. I mean, I feel so much sometimes like my life is like this, like whoop, 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 up and down, you know. And if you were to put a heart monitor on my life, he's like, man, Todd, you got some issues going on, man. You're up and down a lot. And you throw some spiritual AFib in there, you could be all over the place, right? You ever feel that way? I'm sure you do. Like an EKG of your life would show someone who's really up and down. Sometimes you go between pride and shame. You ever do that? I do sometimes. So you have a really good day. You're like, man, I'm knocking out of the park today. And then suddenly that turns into sin. Because you're proud and you think you've done something and you're kind of claiming, you know, credit. Next day you wake up, you're like, man, I'm, I'm feeling awful. I don't even feel like getting out of bed and I'm feeling in a bad mood. I'm not sure why I'm in a bad mood. That turns into shame. You're trying to think nobody really loves me. In the first place, you think everybody loves you, which isn't really true. Sometimes you think nobody loves you. That's not true either. And we bounce back and forth between pride and shame, don't we? What's one to do when they have an EKG kind of life? When it's pride or shame all the time, and you're just kind of like wondering, man, am I ever going to match up? Will I ever be good enough? How's this going to work? Here's what one's to do. Set your direction based on Christ's perfection. Not your effort. Not your achievements. You see, this is how ours are. Ours are up and down. Good day, bad day. On the days you feel great, you'll probably like that. On the days you feel awful, you won't like that. But Christ doesn't have good days and bad days. He's always holy and just and righteous and pure and perfect. So in this analogy, man, we attach our rope to the sure and steady hope of Christ and through the ups and downs we preach the gospel to ourselves you know what man I feel like I'm a winner today yeah but that's a little proud I'm gonna keep my eyes on Christ not on me and I feel like a loser today yeah that's that shame doesn't work I'm gonna keep my eyes on Christ see this is why we fix our eyes on Jesus the author and finisher of our faith the Bible says he was there before, he'll be there in the end. So he is the one that sets our direction. So though we go up and down, the overall direction is tied to Christ and his perfection. I mean, and, and I tell you, this defeats moralism and puts comparison in the grave. And who does not want to live um, without being compared every single day or trying to do better than the day before? Man, I, that's how I want to live. Can I be frank with you? I'm done with moralism. I'm done with comparison, aren't you? I hope you are. How does someone get there? You tie your rope to Christ, and you set your direction by his perfection. So in the days when you, you think you're the king, you say to yourself, no, I'm not the king. Jesus is. And when the days you feel like the goat and the fool, you say, no, I'm not the goat either. Jesus has saved me from being the goat. He actually was the goat for me. He became sin for us so that my pride or shame won't sink me. Guys, I hope you're hearing this, that our actions aren't the final measuring stick. If you belong to Christ, God's not looking at how well you do. How'd you win this day? Did you hit a home run? He's not looking at you to see if he's satisfied. He's already found someone who he's satisfied in. His name is Jesus. In fact, the Bible is so crystal clear on this that when God saves people, this is remarkable. 
because it's so counterintuitive and we don't deserve it. We all feel so immeasurably unworthy when you think about this. But God says that when he saves us, he dresses us with the righteousness of Christ. So when God sees you on your worst or best day, you know what he sees? A perfect child of God. I don't even get that. My mind cannot wrap my hands around that. But God sees a perfect, righteous, just daughter and son if you're in Christ. I'm so thankful God doesn't measure me by my actions that what I've done, that's not the final scorecard, aren't you? I'm glad God measures me by Jesus because Jesus is perfect. I mean, can we just consider this for a little longer? What if you did think your actions saved you? What if you did think that your actions kept you saved? Here's how that goes. Let me just play this out for you. One day you get up, you're feeling great. Man, I'm saved today. You're marching. You're feeling good. Next day you wake up, ah, you're not feeling that great. Not as saved today. That's not a good scenario, is it? But let's, let's extrapolate this. 10, 15 years future, your body's growing old. I mean, you, you get up in a bad mood and you don't even mean to, right? You don't feel the same. You don't even want to get up and you got menopause happening and you got low testosterone happening and then you get another 10, 15 years. You got things breaking and you need new hips and new knees and new elbows. In your mind, you're like, man, I'm 55 again. Your body says, no, you're 85, dude. And you're, you're just not the same action-wise. So are you as safe as you were? Because you're surely not as active. There are things you wish were different, and they're just not happening. So you tell me, can they, can your, is your salvation depending upon those actions? Let's say you get into a bad accident. And let's say, worst case scenario in some sense, and you're a quadriplegic, and you really can't externally do anything for God. Not on the outside. You're bound to a wheelchair. Is suddenly your salvation kind of hinge upon that? Like, well, I'm just not, I can't do much for God except sit in this wheelchair and, and pray. Like, that's not much, but you, you see what I'm saying? You can't really go anywhere, and, and you're not going to be this missionary. You have all these human achievement thoughts in your head, like, well, does your salvation hinge on that? Let's just take the things that aren't accidental in one sense, like the disease that could come to your body as you age, Alzheimer's, dementia. You may become the person that you hope you'll never be. You know that? And I'm not being humorous here. I've sat beside the bedsides of people. They said things that they would never say to their family. In moments of dementia and Alzheimer's, that's not the person that we knew. But man, their body broke down. Let's say you come back from war. You got PTSD issues. Let's say your chemical balances aren't working properly as you age. And so you have chemical imbalances. And you have major bouts of depression. You don't want them. You didn't ask for them. But your body is not regulated at all. I mean, just like sometimes we need things on the outside to help. Like these things called glasses, you know. Hearing aids. Our body insides they break down so what if in the middle of that you're just an emotional mess are you saved can we just be honest if your salvation started with you and depended upon you it is at best a hope so situation and I just talked to you from the aspect of our anatomy I didn't even bring to you scriptures that speak clearly in this issue but could you just agree with me? If it depended on us and started with us, we don't have a prayer. 
You can't count on yourself, guys. Your body's wearing out. There'll be a funeral one day for you if the Lord doesn't come, and they're going to have that nice speech for an hour, and they're going to tell stories out there that'll prove you really were pretty human, okay? It's going to happen to all of us. There is no logical way salvation starts or depends upon our actions. That is at best a hope so. Which is why I think the discovery that Hezekiah made at the end of his prayer is so beautifully and comforting. Look what God said to Hezekiah. I want to close with these verses. Because it shows us why God kept his promise and saved Judah. It really wasn't because of Hezekiah's good or bad actions. I hope this overwhelms you this morning. Look at verse 31. With Sennacherib's downfall already prophesied, here's what God promises Hezekiah. Yes, out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant. And out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. What's the next phrase? The zeal of the Lord will do this. God's own power will make this happen. Hezekiah, you may be a a secondary player, but you're not the reason it's happening. God is doing this. Go down to verse 34. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. It was in response to God's very covenant to David and in response to his own character that God actually took action. Church, are you hearing me in this? Listen very carefully. God is empowered to save. He's prompted to save, not because of your actions. He does that because of his own character. He is a saving God. And he acts from within his own righteous, pure, just self to do what we cannot do for ourselves. Save us. This is proven true in Hezekiah's day. It proved true before and after Hezekiah. This is what God does. Here's why that's good news. If God is doing what he does for his own namesake out of his own character and power, that means our actions, they're not first and they're not final. And that's a great place to go to sleep. You can lay your head on your pillow at night and you can know God was here before me He'll be here after me. He is here before my parents. He'll be here after my kids grow up. I may be the king of this house. I may own this address. Hezekiah may be the king of Judah. But guess what? God is king of the universe. And he's got this. And how comforting is it to know that he sits on the throne. Amen. So let's merge these two kind of fortunate facts just briefly into a single sentence we can kind of get our hands around and take home with us today. How can we put three chapters into a kind of a concise statement? Here's what I'd say to you. It's just kind of repetitive, but that's how we learn. Our actions aren't first, and neither are they final. God was, is, and will be on the throne, forever culminating it all to the glory of His name. That's what's happening not just in 18 through 20, That's been happening all through the kings and the king, isn't it? That's happening throughout the entire narrative of the Bible. It's God who is the the real hero. He's the action figure that brings meaning to all of our actions. So would you say this with me one final time? Here's our take-home truth today. Our actions aren't first, and neither are they final. God was, is, and will be on the throne, forever culminating it all to the glory of his name. And I hope when you say that, as you write that down, as you take a picture of that, 
that your face just smiles and your heart is settled because the pressure is off. I personally, I needed this today. I needed this text this week. Yeah, just to relax. Not to minimize our effort, not to downplay our action. But you know what? We're not the first and we're not the final. God is the key hero. He's the real player in this story. You know, it's not just Hezekiah that reminds us of this, though, but you could track this through the whole Bible. Remember Abraham? He responded to God, but then he lied about his wife. Remember Jacob? He responded to God, then he cheated. Uh, Let's take some more. Remember Gideon? Yeah, he responded to God, and then he doubted, was afraid. Remember Rahab? She responded to God, and she was a prostitute. Remember Jonah? He responded to God, and then he ran. Remember Peter? He responded to God. Then he denied God. And then God used him to plant the very first church. (laughs) Remember Martha? She was one of Christ's best friends, and she overworked herself and worried to death. (laughs) Remember Paul? He persecuted the church. At the same time, he was uh, saved by God. You see, it's clear God's before all these people. He'll be after these people. And their actions, though they matter, aren't the first and they're not going to be the final. It's God who's on the throne. This is why I love the way Revelation concludes. Single verse near the end of Revelation 22 in which Jesus actually proclaims what we've talked about today. Would you stand with me and read this final verse? In all of its power and affirmation, let's boldly proclaim what Jesus says about himself and his timelessness, his transcendency, his authority, his kingship. Read with me, would you, church? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.